As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. And welcome to a special Ask Us Anything edition of Glad Tidings, your dedicated Everton FC podcast from The Athletic, with me, Greg O'Keefe, and Paddy Boyland. We're opening today's podcast, plenty on the running and players coming back to fitness, the inevitable transfer questions, and you're not just worried about the players, a bunch of other random topics you asked about, including whether Everton are night owls or early birds, and whether that actually matters. You can subscribe to Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% of the full price of subscription. You'll get to enjoy all the great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. And if you've already got a subscription or you, you know someone who has, you might well have heard about an interview on The Athletic today with none other than Carlo Ancelotti. Our colleague Adam Crafton had a very in-depth chat with Everton's manager, about all things from his views on the proposals for European Super League to training at Finch Farm to, well, pretty much a very, very in-depth chat. Loads of interesting stuff in there. And I think more than anything, what comes across is just how much Paolo Ancelotti enjoys being at Everton. So a really good read. Don't forget to check that out. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod. Right, on with the questions. Uh, before that, I should just quickly say afternoon to Mr. Boyland, who's on the quieter end of the docks today. He's not got a construction <laughs> site outside of his window. <laughs> Are you all right, Pad? I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not bad. It does feel a little bit as though Liverpool is a construction site at the moment. Everywhere I go, roads are blocked off and there's kind of diggers digging things up. I guess recent developments with uh, Bramley Moore have added to that sense a little bit. We're, we're obviously not at the point where we can uh, see spades on the ground quite yet. I'm sure sure we'll get onto that later. But um, that is in the offing. We've, we've obviously, since we last recorded, we've, we've moved a, another step, big step closer with the news that um, the government are not going to call in for further scrutiny. The uh, the scheme. So uh, it was fantastic news to get last last Friday. 
uh, feels like a long time ago. Um, but fantastic news and really, really looking forward to seeing this progress now from where it is. Like you said that, six days later, it does feel like a lot longer. Um, time in lockdown continues to do strange things, doesn't it? The, uh, yeah. It's either really, really fast or really, really slow. Anyway, let's get on with the question because there's plenty of them and uh, you did respond emphatically to Paddy's tweet earlier. So thank you very much for that. Everyone who sent in a question. If we don't get around to yours, uh, we apologise in advance. But please, um, please do take part in future Q and A because we'll look to get a really widespread of different questions. So let's start with Sam Mason, and he says, "What does Gabamin's reintroduction look like from here? Do you think we could re- realistically see him start a game before the end of the season?" Well, um, my initial thoughts was that I would hope so because he's been training. Um, Paddy spoke to. Well, you may have read Paddy's piece. Uh, I think was it last year now, Pad, when you spoke to some of the people that he'd been, some specialists that, that Jean-Philippe had been training with over in France um, as he tries to get back fit. There's a feeling, isn't there, that, you know, he is, we are going to see him, aren't we, Pad? <laughs> we are going to see him yeah. and Everton shirt on the pitch soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we will do. Um, obviously, it's been a very cautious approach from Everton up to now, as, as I wrote in that piece earlier this year as it happened um he left the he was working with a personal trainer in france in paris uh, until around december last year and since then he's been working his, his way back to full fitness over here so he could eventually reintegrate back into full training great over the international break when things are quite quiet to see him not only back at finch farm but also step things up an extra gear and uh, train with the first team was a video put out last Friday by the club where they showed him in those kind of small-sided training games that, that Everton play so often, actually, yeah. uh, at Finch Farm. Everton will continue to be cautious, and I think rightly so. What they don't want to do is rush the lad back prematurely because I think there's a feeling that another big setback, not necessarily a muscular injury, injury but a re-injury of the Achilles tendon or the quadriceps could prove quite damaging as far as Gabamin's concerned, not just from a physical perspective, but also mentally. So I think they will continue to be really cautious with him. The good news is he's back in training. The good news is that he's back mm. in contact training. He's he's tackling, he's passing, he's running, all those kinds of things on the grass. Um, so there has been progress over the last few weeks. And I think Ancelotti's always maintained throughout, even when we didn't see Gabamin at Finch Farm. He's, he's always maintained that there was a chance that there could be reintegration and there could be game time before the end of the season. And nothing that I've seen over the last few weeks would would contradict that. I, w- I wouldn't expect him to start against Crystal Palace by any stretch of the imagination. I might would potentially wouldn't even expect to see him in the squad necessarily. Um, I think Everton will take their time. But would I rule out him playing before the end of the season? Absolutely not. And that would be cracking. I think, I think the goal is to get him reintegrated now and then to make sure he's ready for a full pre-season and to hit the ground running next season. I think that's the big challenge for him. I don't know, what do you think? Well, maybe I'm being foolishly optimistic, but I almost think that, that I think realistically speaking, you're right. But also, I think, given there's, what, nine games left, you'd like to hope he can have a meaningful contribution to at least, say, like, let's say, the last sort of four or five of them. Um, now, that is without obviously you've got to allow for time to be re- readjust or effectively adjust all over again to playing in, this, in the Premier League at the pace and everything like that. So maybe five games worth of impact is a stretch. But um, 
I still think that he's got to nearly prove himself all over again and prove that, you know, he's the player that Marcel Brands thought he was and that he, there are show signs that he can be a, a, a part of the squad next season, almost to allay having to think about addressing that area with another signing in the summer. So I think it's going to be, um, it'll be more than just, uh, there'll be something meaningful about his return. I'm not going to expect him to be 100%, and you're right, the focus will never be on seeing the real command probably next season. Um, any player needs time to adjust, don't they? But especially someone who's gone through what he's gone through. But on the flip side, at least we know he's had a long time living in this country. He knows his teammates. So um, uh, he will have done some of the off-the-pitch adjustments really in that period of time. But let's hope he can have a he can have a tangible impact on our sort of fight to get into, into the top five or six. I think that's quite an interesting point that you made there when you were talking about what he needs to do himself to, to almost prove to Ancelotti he can be an option moving forward. What you've got to remember is he is still effectively a new player as far as Everton are con- concerned. He's, he's had 135 minutes of football, which is one and a half games. And he's not really played in a, in a match context with most of his teammates. Some of them are new to him, completely new. Um, so it's gonna, we've had lockdown. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while. But that's a really interesting point about him impressing and improving himself because it's obviously fairly recently Ancelotti said that they are looking at midfield potentially for the summer. And that would be very much dependent on how people like Gabamin and Delph go in this period and over pre-season. So if, if, they don't, if they don't perform or they don't stay fit, then of course there is an, a, a chance that Everton will look to the part of the pitch for, for strengthening over, over the summer. And that, that would be quite interesting. I, I, I actually still think that they're short in that area. I, I think they know, need more ball playing quality and more energy in there regardless. Let, let's hope somebody like Gabamin can, uh, can be the one to bring that. Well, that, that feeds into the next couple of questions, really. Um, certainly, Jonathan Smith wants to know which players do you think the club will be actively trying to find exits for in an able squad rationalisation. So we're, we're talking about bringing players potentially in. Um, Jonathan's thinking about players sort of going the other way, really. And then to an extent, the Pyman has got a similar question. Um, admittedly, he's a controversial one, only because I like a good debate. Is DCL's all-around game good enough to lead the line and ultimately fulfil our, our, our ambitions? I guess I'm talking about his play outside the six-yard backfield. Or conversely, is Richarlison's if not, do we cash in on one on one of them? We did say it was controversial. Um, so let's quickly look at Jonathan first. You know, in the name of squad rationalisation, what what a romantic concept. Um, do you think the club will be actively trying to find exits for certain players? Yeah, I think they absolutely have to. You look at the model over the last few years and what we know about financial fair fair play constraints, and obviously they could change in a sense. But Everton still do need to be careful. They do need to bring in money um, through transfers uh, and transfers out of the club in particular. So I, I look at people, I look at somebody like John Joe Kenny, who will come back from his loan at Celtic over the summer. And he'll only have, I think, is it one year left on his deal at that point? Yeah. If he's not going to sign a new deal, and there's no sign that one is forthcoming at the moment, I, I should point out then he's a, he's a sellable asset. He's somebody you need to get off the books quite soon. Um, Bernard nearly went in January, uh, obviously a high earner. So that's a continuation from from the winter. Cenk Tosin will come back. He's only on loan 
can they find a club for Jenk Tosin? Theo Walcott, Theo Walcott should leave anyway because uh, he's out of contract. I don't think it would be a huge surprise if he if he wasn't retained. Um, and then it's yeah, it's, it's trimming around the fringes, getting getting moved for whoever you can. Um, I might have missed somebody out there, maybe, um, but they're the ones that really stick out to me. Just Balassi, but you know, I think it's clear that, that he will he will go once he, you know a permanent deal. Uh, or am I losing the plot? Did he go in January? I forget where his current status is. Uh, he's had that many loans. Yeah, he's a Middlesbrough. He's a Middlesbrough yeah. on loan. No, no, no he... I mean, I forget what. Sorry, I forget where he is in terms of is he still our player or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He is just he is just about yeah. He would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where, where is he geographically? He's in he's in Middles, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but Balassi is another one. He's, so, he's going to have a future Mo Besic. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a there's a few there. Um, let's just have a quick point on what the was asking. Basically. I suppose he's just playing for debating stakes. Do we need to look at maybe trying to cash in on either DCL or Charles? And I, I would, I would just frankly say no. Um, I think if you want to progress, you need both of them in uh, in your squad. Um, and so I think the harder will be trying to keep hold of them both, but looking to try and cash in on them because uh, following his suggested logic, you you think you can do better. Um, I don't see Everton attracting better. Uh, at the moment, unless you know things change and they get in the top four, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't have thought they would do it. Two players that you were looking to move on because of deficiencies in their game. Although I admit, neither neither is perfect. I'm not saying that, but I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, I'm sure to be looking to move them on. They're some of the stronger parts of this Everton team. When you when you strip out somebody like a Richarlison or a Calvert Lewin, Everton suffer and a weaker for it. I'm not suggesting that you'd strip them out and not bring somebody else in, but yeah, why? Unless you absolutely had to, unless you had to sell somebody, or unless somebody really wanted to go, why would you purposely, purposely weaken that part of the the, the pitch, a, a stronger part of the pitch? I'd, I'd be looking at weaker areas as it is, and going, can we do something at right back? Can we do something central midfield? Can can we maybe do something on the wings to get add a kind of an injection of pace? Uh, I wouldn't be um, where possible. I wouldn't be looking to overhaul really. Certainly not. Um... County Road Bobblers and Alan Robertson asked some of the questions that sort of County Road Bobblers ask, is there anyone you think we could, we could buy that might not be the most overwhelming deal but would really start, sorry, would really boost the squad overall? And then they suggest Daniel James uh, as someone who, you know, might not be a staggering signing, probably a la James Rodriguez, but they think would boost the squad. And then Alan Robinson says, name three new feasible players you would like to see in Everton's first game of next season. So, interesting one, really. Daniel James, um, he's a good player. Um, it's a good one. It's a good question, really. Daniel James, what do you think? Would, would he have a place? Does he get into Everton's first team? He's actually playing for Manchester United a fair bit at the moment. Yeah, he is. He's playing a lot more recently, hasn't he, than he did sort of start the season. He carved, carved a bit of a niche as this workhorse on the right flank, mm. troubling sides on the counter-attack with his pace. I, I think he's all right. I, I, I think there's an issue there over end product, to be honest. I'm not seeing a lot of evidence from him at Premier League level that he's able to score and set up goals in the way that you maybe would have wanted. But I think what, what the question speaks to, potentially, is a lack of something in the Everton squad and and for me that's pace. I mean, if we if we are effectively saying that Richarlison 
is now in, in Ancelotti parlance, he's a centre left forward. Um and we're moving him away from a position yeah. on the on the left wing. Then what wingers do Everton actually have? Because we've already spoken about today, you'd expect Walcott and Balassi. They're ninety-nine point nine percent likely to leave over the summer. Uh Bernard, his future's up in the air, but I, I don't know, do you do you even really class him as a winger? He, to me he's absolutely not. No. He's, he's, certainly not in the old school sense. Alex Awobi, I think he probably sees his position as a number 10, but he can fill in in wide areas. So do Everton actually have any wingers? I, I don't no, know. Um, no. Certainly not after the summer. So I, I would look at that position, maybe not Daniel James as such, but I would look at that position and, and think to myself, Everton Everton do need to strengthen. Everton do need something more. Everything seems to be in front of the opposition at the moment. I think you need those runners breaking behind to, to, to give... Hammers a bit more space in the midfield and a few others a bit more space in the midfield. Um, not sold on Daniel James, but um, on board with the concept of, of pace and extra width. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Neil Buddy, eighteen seventy eight. Another funny question. Um, will Barnes be in for a new goalkeeper in the summer? Uh, well, I mean, look, a lot of it depends, I suppose. It, Rob, there was, there was talk, strong talk that Robin Olsen might might be looking that they might be looking to make Robin Olsen's loan permanent. Um, now, although the situation hasn't seemingly changed or we haven't had confirmation situations changed there have been several things that you know he's had injuries um, there was the horrendous break-in at his house in uh great you know sort of cheshire manchester way um which may have you sort of left him feeling unsettled um and he still may well become you know he still may well become the permanent uh sort of deputy slash competitor for the number one shirt but I almost wonder if Carlo uh, will be looking for an even more compelling option. What do you think? Well, he was looking for a more compelling option in January. He didn't go to Robert Olsen straight away. Obviously, we we, we reported at the time that he mm-hmm. liked the look of particularly Sergio Romero at Manchester United. Yeah, that's right. Um, Paolo Gazaniga at Tottenham was, was another one that they kind of had a little bit of a look at. And then when those two moves failed... Then they had a look at Robin Olsen, who was kind of pretty readily available after dropping down the pecking order at Roma. Ancelotti's being pretty happy with Olsen. All things considered, he, he wanted to bring in his own man to push Pickford, uh, who is still undisputed number one. And um, I think for all intents and purposes, would have been quite happy to extend 
Olsen stay at Goodison. So let, let's see how that one goes. In answer to Neil's question, yes, I think he will look to bring in a goalkeeper, whether it's Robin Olsen or somebody else. If it's a different question, if what Neil is actually asking is, do Everton need a proper new number one? Then I think that's that's harder to answer. And I've I don't know about you, but I've not seen any evidence yet to suggest that confidence has completely dwindled in Jordan Pickford. And the other thing I'd point out as well is that even if you wanted to bring in a new number one ahead of Jordan Pickford, how would you shift somebody like Pickford on? Because his stock's not where it was. After the uh, after the last World Cup, where he was performing heroics, this, this seems it seems tougher. So I would expect I would expect movement in the goalkeeping department, but I don't know if it would necessarily be uh, a revolution as such. To use kind of a Carlo Ancelotti term, more uh, more evolution if we're going partridge style. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> he keeps his cards so close to chef on Pickford, doesn't he? But there's certainly been no indication on or off the record that he's. Uh, He's ready to to look for a new permanent number one. Yes, we'll see what comes of that. Mm. Uh, matters more on the pitch in terms of the the, the fourth, you know, as well the future really. Um, Peter McCall wants to know with the run in coming. Traditionally, we tend to end the season strong, and, and what hurdles do we face? Um, yeah, so I mean, he's looking at that really, kind of some some. Some winnable games, but we don't know what our winnable games are going for Everton, do we? <laughs> um, you know, it's but what hurdles do we face? Well, we were talking before we started recording. There's some big games on a Friday, even for starters, that are going to be really difficult, aren't they? Yeah, so the fixtures changed fairly recently uh, for April, and Everton faced Tottenham at home and Arsenal away in that calendar month, both on Friday night. Both, don't quote me on this, but. Eight o'clock kickoffs, I think, around eight o'clock at least. Um, they're tough games, really tough games, because if, if effectively they are going to be direct competitors as far as a, a, the fight for Europe is concerned. Um, it's 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 not the worst fixture list in the world, but it's it's equally it, it it's not the easiest that they could have had either. I I look at one of the big questions for me is how they cope with the absence of Abdullah Dukore. We we've spoken on past shows about Ducore's ability to just fill in and plug gaps all over the pitch. Yeah. Whether it be providing a bit of energy from midfield going forward, breaking the lines, or if it's, I don't know, running into the right back channel to cover for James in the early part of the season. He, he's very good. He's, he's positionally intelligent. And I think without him, Everton lack energy and lack a bit of that positional intelligence. Mm. So how do they cope without him? Can they keep other players fit? I think there's a there's obviously, as we've mentioned before, a massive reliance on James Rodriguez. He's missed an awful lot of football, but is on his way back now and potentially could play against Crystal Palace. Are they able to keep him fit for the final 10 games of the season? Because if they are, Everton's chances of getting into Europe, I would suggest, rise exponentially. They go right up, shoot up. So um, I, I think it's about managing the squad, making sure that they get through in one piece. Yeah. The, clo- the closer they are to their full strength eleven the greater the chance, obviously, that they have. And we, we saw in the early part of the season what they can be like at the very best. I, I loved watching them for that opening six, seven, eight games where they were just tearing teams apart with kind of wonderful free-flowing attack and football. Yeah, didn't we all? Yeah, yeah we've, we've moved away from that. So I, I think it's a tough, a tough fixture list. Keep players fit. They, they, they've got a chance of a, probably an outside chance of getting into the Europa League. I don't, I don't know what you think. I feel as if the Champions League is pretty much gone. Uh, but I think 
keep those players fit and get Rodriguez's influence consistent and back, then I think they'll, they'll get the points that they need. Uh, and Paul Fortenberry and Matthew Barry have similar questions, really, and I would just say that what Paddy, Paddy said, I agree with it. Just kind of uh, goes hand in hand with that. It's going to be luck with injuries and making sure that they can get Rodriguez on the pitch as much as possible. Uh, Joe Lee Dowd has got an interesting question. He says he saw the athletic stats earlier in the week about us having the league's second or third lowest portion of touches in the opposition third all season. What's the deal with that? He asks. Uh, we can't seem to attack properly and create non cross chances anymore, especially without Rodriguez. It's funny because we were literally just saying that really, weren't we? Those halcyon days of September, you know, when we were tearing teams apart with that 4 3 3. Um, Things have changed, haven't they, really, with that? We've had these discussions ourselves, haven't we, in, in private, Greg, where we've, yep. because the fixture list has been so congested, we've gone to games and effectively it becomes, what do you write about? What's the theme from this this match as, our, as the match piece? What are you, what are you going to cover? And so often, particularly in some of these home games, that the trap is set for you. You can fall very easily back into, effectively, Everton are not very good in possession. And there's a, a massive onus on, on James Rodriguez in particular, to create chances from open play. Yeah. The big question mark for me is, what do they do when they don't establish that aerial dominance? They're great when Luca Dean's fizzing in crosses and Calvert-Lewin and Bichalison are attacking them. Against sides that can't stand up to that, Everton look a million dollars and look like they can they can score basically all the time. Yeah. But there, there are multiple sides in the league. Any any David Moyes team, just off the top of my head, they're going to be able to defend crosses all day. Even some of the, the garbage in the league, the dross, the, the likes of Newcastle, they've got people like Jamal Lasalles who, who will lap that kind of service up all day. I've not yet seen, beyond maybe the first four or five games, I've not yet seen a sustainable way of creating chances. And I don't actually think Everton managed the ball very well at all. So um, it remains to be seen whether they can improve on that with the current personnel. James will improve it a bit. Um, but I would look at it in the summer and I'd almost say, are they able to get somebody that dictates? I was I was just thinking the other day, I'd, I'd love them to have a new version of Gareth Barry. Do you remember like 13, yeah. 14 Gareth Barry that just sits yeah. in front and he's just great at orchestrating play. I feel as though they miss that kind of metronome. Um they don't really have it and they, they've struggled to get the ball up the pitch at times. No, so. I agree. Shouldn't Alan Shouldn't Alan sort of be capable of doing that? But possibly. It's a rhetorical question because, he, yeah. you know, yeah, of course, possibly he should, but he doesn't do it. You're, you're right, we do miss that type of player massively. I don't see enough guile from this Everton side yet and obviously we've written quite a lot effectively along the lines of there's a correlation between hmm. the more possession Everton have and the amount of defeats they have. So if they... When, when they have six, above 65% possession, they t- tend to lose most of the games they play. But when they have below 30% possession, they tend to win most of those matches. So they're, they're just better simply at the moment as a as an outfit that defends, that creates a couple of moments and, and keeps things tight. Yeah. And then they, they hope they hope to nick things. I would like to see more than that beyond the summer, by the way. Well, he's got to, he's got yeah. to evolve that, hasn't he? Because that's yeah. no way to progress up the, up the table in the long run. Um, Roger Propera. Uh, wants to know what our impressions of King has been so far from the outside. It looks like a disappointing signing with little minutes on the pitch so far. Not it's not likely to sign permanently in the summer as it stands. Question mark. I did a piece last week, week before last, about Joshua King, um, which sort of addressed his, um, these points really. Uh, although obviously, you know, the 
it, there's still a portion of the season left, so we, we will see whether or not he gets the opportunity. I think he's been a little bit unlucky to a degree, um, you know, in terms of Richarlison being back into goal-scoring form. And Ancelotti is obviously unlikely to break those up in, in terms of starting uh, starting eleven. Now, your limited minutes on the pitch, I would agree with, but he's come on in most games. Hasn't been enough, again, I agree with. And it's been up and down what we've seen from him. Um, although in fairness to him, he's come on in games quite often when we're losing. Um, the best performance is arguably against Fulham, which, uh, well, or Chelsea, to be fair, again, we lost. So, hmm, I'm not convinced so far, but I don't think it's entirely on him. What do you? What have you made of Joshua King so far? I think it's been disappointing. Um, it depends who you want to blame for that, really. We we reported over the summer that he was somebody that Everton were looking at, along with a host of clubs in fairness, because he only had 12 months at that point left on his deal. Yeah. So he's not somebody that they've just plucked out of nowhere. They, they, they've scouted him for a while and have known about him for a while. I would have expected, with that in mind, I would have expected this loan to have been slightly more profitable up to now. The odd goal here or there. I don't think anybody can be expected to come in and completely hit the ground running in a new side and maybe displace for Charles and Calvert-Lewin from the outset, score five, six, seven goals. He's not going to be like the new Kevin Campbell for Everton, who came obviously in, in that in that famous season from Trabs on Spore and bagged that glut of goals. I think that that's beyond players, really, in the main. That that was a le- legendary feat from, from Campbell. But you'd have expected something. Um, we've not seen that, and obviously Ancelotti's not seen that. If he's if he's not given him enough opportunities to to play, um, I'd like to see him get a chance here or there to see what he, uh, show what he can do. Um, but there have been games when Everton have been missing players, and he still hasn't really got on really got on the pitch. So yeah, d- disappointing. And at one point, I'd have looked at that and gone, if Everton could acquire him for a budget fee over the summer, as was originally mooted, then that probably would have been a good bit of business. But You'd have to suggest that because things have been slow up to now, the chances of him extending his time at Goodison must have decreased. That I'm, I'm just talking logically here, by the way, um, rather than based on any info. He's he's not done anything to to to, to earn a, a permanent move at the moment, has no, he? No, he hasn't. Um, and that's circumstantially they've got the cover they need. And if that's all it comes down to, um, then you know maybe they both shake hands at the end of the period and say. Um, you know, you, let, let's call it a day. You know, he served the purpose and Everton did for him. But well, I suppose they will have done if he gets a few more games because he wanted to keep... I think the impression I got from speaking to people who know him is that he wants to be playing football. Um, he probably hasn't done as much of that as he'd liked, in fairness. So we'll see. He's got options as well, I would say, to Roger. Roger, rather, there are clubs who, who want to take him in this country and in Europe. So maybe that's a, a case of they might, get, might well go separate ways. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, 
an official partner of The Athletic. Can I ask, are the club trying to improve the pathway to the first team for youngsters? As we've only had limited players make the step up recently. Um, and I suppose even that, and I'm adding this uh, to, you know, for the debate's sake, even that has been up in and out in terms of Brand Great and Anthony Gordon. Um, you know, there's been fresh speculation about Siri Small's uh, situation with, you know, obviously he's shown his potential for the 18s and 23s and and seemingly really keen to be playing the first team but there's quite a significant buttress in front of him in terms of Luca Dean and then that's not even forgetting Niels and Kunku. Um but maybe the pace and points is Tyler on younger been on the bench a lot not really featured um, so do you think there's a real pathway I mean they talk of the pathway a lot but I suppose ultimately Ancelotti doesn't tend to be uh, as willing to play young players as perhaps previous managers have been. You can talk all day, can't you, about pathways and the amount of players you have on the bench. But if the guy at the top decides not to play them, then it's all moot, really. And I think Ancelotti at the moment would much rather, let's say, for example, if he was given the option in an injury crisis of playing Tyler and Yango or dropping Gilfie Sigurdsson deeper, playing Andre Gomez, Tom Davis... He's going to favour the more experienced player nine times out of ten, potentially yeah, even ten, ten yeah. times out of ten, if yeah. if we're being frank. Um, so, I think below him, Marcel Brand certainly has, has has been focused on this quite a lot. I've written quite a lot. I feel over the last few months about this, this idea of getting a sustainable structure in place and getting players promoted up earlier. So obviously, Ellis Sims, Jared Branthwaite, Anthony Gordon all went out on loan in January for for extra game time. That freed up spaces on the first team bench. It freed up spaces in the under twenty threes as well for under eighteens players. And then because the under eighteens are in the under twenty threes, under sixteens go into the under eighteens. So I kind of feel as though they are starting to make headway with that pathway. Mm. They are getting to where they need to be. But that's gonna be a that's gonna be a process over an extended period of time to, to get anywhere where anywhere close to where it needs to be um things don't happen overnight in that regard we are starting to see some signs of it now but ultimately like you say are those kids good enough and at the end of the day is Ancelotti going to play them because they're going to have to be very very good to get in a side with aspirations of of European football up to now he's not bit the bullet has he he hasn't no uh even when you know you could sort of like in quite a I suppose quite a reductive manner you could just look at it and say well and Yango is big and and uh long legs and can get up and down the pitch um, you know oh we're, we're lacking that player in Gagore being injured surely he should get a go but uh, the same Ancelotti's watching these players in training um, and I think I would trust his opinion on whether they're ready Yeah. but what that means for the wider pathway hmm, it's a good question ultimately I suppose Everton are a club Ancelotti is here to help Everton take the next step uh, and, and win things and get into Europe and compete in Europe as opposed to perhaps and, and there will be a bit of this and this is where Marcel Brands has kind of role as opposed to producing young players who can ultimately if not become first team players and save everything a lot of money can then become pros and and, and cash everything money from elsewhere moving on and moving on 
but giving them the time to do it doesn't necessarily fit into whether or not you know his desire to move everything forward. So there's going to be a bit of friction there, I think, and um, not easy. It's not easy at all. But I think a lot of big clubs do have a lot of young players who end up going out on loan perpetually. You just see that with Chelsea and City. So maybe that's uh, down the line what happens to Everton and ultimately players may well choose to go and play elsewhere. Um, a similar question really from Everton Viking. But on to the Bramley Moor Stadium, as Pad reminds us earlier, it's almost a week since we got the fantastic news that Robert Jenrick, uh, the community secretary, isn't going to call in stadium plans, effectively therefore endorsing the planning permission, which has already been passed unanimously by Liverpool Council. So there we go. No more, uh, certainly no more major obstacles in the way. Um, historically, England effectively seem to have removed their objection or certainly indicate they weren't going to appeal. Uh, now it's just the case of certain things falling into place, money, they've got to announce their funding partner. And then it comes to Tom Charner's question, when can we expect the first spade in the ground of Bramley Moor? And Graham the Traveller and Matthew Neal ask similar questions, as I'm sure many Blues want to know. Um, when can we expect to see some work starting? Uh, looking like, I know it's a little bit vague, but it's looking like the summer, isn't it? Yeah, so when we spoke to the club around the, the last announcement, they were saying spring or, or summer. I'd suggest it's probably summer now, isn't it? Um, yeah. We're already in April and um, there are still a few hurdles to, to overcome, particularly just getting this signed off legally more than anything. Obviously, permission's being given, but there's procedures to go through, the paperwork to be completed, legislation to sign, all that kind of stuff. Like you say, they've, they've obviously made progress with funding partners and that shouldn't be a massive issue, but they need to get it all signed off. And uh, yeah, they said spring or, or summer. I'd probably say summer at the moment is looking more realistic, potentially. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's an awful lot of uh, initial work to be done on the site as well before, so which you could probably class as a spade in the ground, but it might not be, you know, huge diggers and, and cranes on site. It might be, as they call it, remedial work um, to prepare the dock for the process because it's such a unique you know, project in many ways. The process of being infilled in parts and and then getting it ready to then start to build the foundations and then skeleton the stadium. But um, yeah, later in the summer, I would say, I would hope for. And then the next step is just to get the confirmation that uh, the funding partner's in place and I expect that and expect it to be a, a good deal, in all honesty. Um, there were some moans and, and groans and, and questions about Premier League and uh, some were really interesting. Actually, Upper Gladys Blue wanted to know, do you think it bothers the manager and the team that 20 out of 22 league games from December through April have all been nice games? Uh, I'm thinking, he says, in terms of recovery, time, sleep after games. It's not the norm to play virtually all your games at night. Do you think it's had an adverse effect? It's an interesting question. Um, there have been more night games. It feels like that's probably part. I would suggest, I don't know this for a fact, part of it, but I see what you think, but a lot of that's because the, the lots of fixtures with COVID and the, the nature of the season and fitting them all in for, for the broadcast purposes. Um, how much of an effect it has? I'm, I'm not sure. What do you think, Pat? It's interesting he mentions 
having a moan effectively because I know that I like to have a moan about this. <laughs> it's something <laughs> it's something that annoys me a lot and that I often vent about on social media in one form or another. I, I did after the latest fixture list announcements. Um, just like he says, th- this kind of repetitive pattern of night games and what that means with regards to working hours and, and everything else. Recovery is an interesting point too because it inevitably means that, let's say, for example, you play on a Sunday night and you've got another game on Wednesday. You have less time to prepare and to recover. Players normally get at least one day off after some of these games. So you're eating into the week, really, before you... Substantially into the week before you, you're doing your, your base work for the next match, your tactical work, stuff on the training ground, all, all that kind of stuff, your video analysis. Um, so I, I don't think the fixture list has always been particularly kind to Everton. They seem to have had a disproportionate amount of night games. The context, like you say, is very much that with COVID the way it is at the moment, certainly the way it has been, I think the Premier League are trying to space the games out over the course of three, four days yeah. over, over the weekend. So there are loads of different slots being used and Everton have been unlucky in quotation marks that they've had all these these games over this period. Mm. I've, I've not heard any I've not heard any grumbling. Carlo Ancelotti's not the kind of guy that really grumbles to the media about anything, really. He's, 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 he's rarely moaned about the injury list, even though we know it's been pretty heavy at times for Everton this season, still is in reality. Um, he's not really done that. He's not the kind of guy that really has moans and gripes. He, he gets on with the job and um, maybe, I don't know, maybe behind the scenes people will, will will speak their mind a bit more. I don't know, but I've not heard of much. What I would say is I don't think anybody is going to be happy from a recovery point of view with this amount of late games. I, I wouldn't be in their position. No, no, I agree. Um, it's not ideal. It, it can't be optimum in terms of how you want your season to go. And there does seem to be more more than ever. Um, but I do quite like that Antrothy's not doesn't tend to look for excuses. Um, it's us poor journalists. I worry about pads. You know, with our, what about our recovery? <laughs> a lot of coffee being drunk on the morning after these night games when we're filing these pieces. <laughs> let me tell you that. Um, right. Yeah, Craig Lloyd asked us some question actually about fixtures and how much input the club have for the Premier League. Not much. Uh, yeah, not much at all, really. Um, it's more the Premier League and the broadcasters, isn't it? Especially the way it is at the moment, I think. Yeah. Um, feels that way for a while. The club often gets stuff presented to them as a faith to look, We've moved it to five o'clock on a Friday. So, um, and that's, a, that's been a long-standing pattern, hasn't it, in terms of fans getting the, the, the raw end of the deal? I think you only have to look back to the, the festive period and the game that was called off against Manchester City. Now, I'm not apportioning any blame here, but Everton didn't feel as though they were part of the decision-making process. Exactly. And that, that's why they responded so vehemently by yeah. their own standards. We, we know that they normally like to keep their powder dry. They normally like to be the elder statesman in the room. Quite right, too, in most cases. But they weren't happy with that because it felt as though the decision had been made by Manchester City rightly or wrongly in conduct, in conjunction with the Premier League. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, responded negatively, so... I think that gives you an insight into where the balance of power is. I think the broadcasters, because of the way situation is at the moment, because of the money they pay, because of the the loss of kind of certain things to to do with atmosphere and things that improve a broadcast, I think they ha- have an awful lot of power, maybe now more than ever before. So they can 
largely dictating things on their terms. Yeah, that's true, especially now at the moment. Um, they can indeed. And then just one last question from, uh, from some really interesting ones is from <laughs> the uh, amusing name Turkey Worky. And he says, to mark 20 years since his debut, which is uh, an interesting anniversary, I'm sure I didn't think of that. Uh, what is Tony Ibbett's greatest performance <laughs> in a blue shirt? Eight years since his debut. Tony Ibbett's greatest performance in a blue shirt. I mean, He's, he was a throwback as a fullback, you know, wasn't he? Back to the days when there was more of an emphasis put on defensive, you know, tackles, blocks, stopping, but, you know, more, well, we know at the attacking side of the modern game wasn't his, his strong season. We know that he, you know, he probably wouldn't have um, been what is needed in this era of wing-backs, but he was a fantastic defender, wasn't he? And a really, really loyal servant to the club. Yeah, well, as, as everybody knows, he, he obviously didn't score a competitive goal for Everton, so we, we can't really talk about wonderful buccaneering attacking displays. I do I do remember him. It was at the 4-4 at Old Trafford um, where Everton rallied and, yeah, and got a late right draw. Here, I remember him putting at least one cross. cross. Uh, in, fact, in fact, I think he got two assists that day. One for Jelovic and maybe another in the second half for either Jelovic or Fellaini. I'd need to check that again. He, he, he was good that day in an attacking sense. But I, more than anything with Hibbert, I remember him just being the guy that you wanted to face down the tricky opposition winger. He did it like when Manchester City had Martin Petrov mm. and they were just kind of a coming force in the game. Yeah. I was really worried about Martin Petrov that day because I thought he's, he's, he's rinsing everybody at the moment, this guy. Yeah. And... um. Hibbert just had him in his pocket. He um, wasn't the first winger yeah. that he did that to. Yeah. And I, th- I think that he, is, he was a throwback, as you say, and I think that was because, remember Gary Neville saying that around that time, a lot of fullbacks were fa- failed centre-halves, for, for want of a better um, analogy. And it was, it was very much, maybe you were too small to play centre-half, but you had good defensive instinct, so you'd shift across to right-back. Yeah, And really what all you were expected to do was go one-on-one with the, with the opposition fullback, opposition winger, and, and win your individual battles, particularly in a defensive sense. You weren't expected to be a playmaker or a creator or set up goals. I think Ashley Cole kind of changed that. Or he was one of the first that changed that because he he was the guy that he'd played early on in his youth career as a, as a, as a striker, a forward, a left winger, but Arsenal dropped him back. And that's when the role of the fullback sort of started to change. All of a sudden, they went from being failed centre halves to to being, well, from failed wingers to to fullbacks, and he was just a little bit caught in that maelstrom. I think Tony Hibbert, he, he was a very good defender, but he didn't add much often in an attacking sense. What I would say, he was fantastic servant for Everton, really, really good, top pro. Uh, you club covered the club in more depth than I did in in those days, Greg. So you'll know more than more than me. But he, he was never really one to talk to the media, was he? He, he, he kind of kept his kept his uh, his powder dry. And and now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now after uh, after football, he's got his um, he's got a fishery, hasn't he? Out in out in rural France, he's, he he's, has. He's, yeah, into he carping and stuff like that. Embracing his love of fishing. Yeah, you're right. He wasn't one for doing much media. He didn't really. Um, not that he was never rude he was just didn't enjoy that at all and would find novel ways to try and avoid it and I always chuckle I remember him once coming through the mixed zone and it was at United actually and um, it might have even been after that 4-4 funny enough bad when you're right he did have a storm in a game 
and he was coming through the McDo and I was waiting to try and get him to stop for a rare interview. And um, he, he was on his phone, which obviously, you know, would suggest I can't stop. And uh, as he was walking, his phone started ringing. So he clearly wasn't on his phone at all. He was just trying to... <laughs> and uh, I heard laughter coming from the other end of the mix zone. And I, I suspect one of his teammates may well have uh, tried to do him up like a kipper. I, I certainly saw the funny side. And uh, he... Did he stop then? Uh, I think he did. I think, uh, actually, I think he sort of saw the funny side himself. Red face stopped and did four minutes of very short and uh, I think dancers but that was Tony lovely fella uh, not a big talker but a really really big player for Everton that part of Premier League era for Everton and as you say defensively one on one as a stopper in his prime um, he was tremendous for the Blues so nice one to end it with and thanks for that question Kirk um, enjoyed that thanks for all your questions like I say if we didn't get round to them we will in future and we'll try and do this a bit more on the podcast and uh, yeah once again I'm just uh, thank you for listening wish you all a happy Easter and speak to you next time for stalking them in the margins um, I think uh, trying to outwit them and get up close I think I, I like that The Athletic